This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Schreiber. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're continuing our discussion of Machiavelli's controversial leadership book, The Prince. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about the geography of the book, where Florence is in relation to other places in Italy, and we talked about historical context and where Machiavelli fits in with the Italian Renaissance, um, which is that term often used for that great shift in thinking in Italy, which resulted in a lot of famous art and architecture. And uh, it also had a shift in thinking toward more realistic ways to view the world. Uh, among the household names of this movement is the political thinker, Niccolo Machiavelli. Uh, we talked about how Machiavelli was a civil servant who worked for 13 years for the Republic of Florence, only to be exiled when the Medicis returned to power. Unfortunately, he was one of the few who was blacklisted from the new regime and uh, as a way to prove his value to the Medicis and kind of attempt to retain a position within the current regime, he wrote The Prince, which is an honest expose on how uh, to practice politics in their modern world at that time. The book is not a moral handbook. I mean, it's absolutely indifferent to morality in a traditional way of thinking. Um, it's practical, or rather, it's a realistic guide as to how to gain, and more importantly, how to hold on to power when you do gain it. Today, we're going to look at uh, a few of the core terms used throughout the book, the first being the state, the second being virtue, and the third being fortune, and last, the concept of the occasion, or how do you say that with your Italian accent? Occasioni. Okay. <laughs> Who knows if that's even correct. Uh, 
We're also going to begin to uh, dissect a few of the maxims outlined in the first eight chapters, uh, chapters where he mostly discusses the different ways you can get to power as well as some of the characteristics you need to have in order to establish yourself as a new prince while leading like an established one. It's important to understand um, that although his terminology and even the particulars of his reality are uh, somewhat outdated, we don't have principalities or dukes or warring popes such like they did back then anymore. But in many ways, it's really impressive to me how very much the same our organizations function, and no matter what we call them. And because of this, many uh, of the principles he creates find a modern application in our world and not just in politics, although for sure in politics, but in business also in church world and, uh, and, and other social structures. Well, I agree with that. And I think a lot of people, when they start to think, see that immediately. I had a student say just this week, and I want to quote something that I read in a paper. She said this, I have seen this very principle played out in my friend group. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> she, they have. Well, the names change, but the principles and the way we act, the way people react, doesn't change, and even after hundreds of years. <laughs> well, which is why we said in the last episode, or I said anyway, that he was maybe the first psychologist that studied politics or I think people political think that. psychologist. Exactly. Because he really did focus on only the behaviors, none of the noise, just the behaviors. And uh, so... Um, as best we can, we'll try to break down uh, these principles or really break them out of the context of the 16th century Florence and uh, see how they could make sense in our modern world. So let's get started, Christy. All right. Which brings us back to sentence one. Sentence <laughs> there is a one. way which Machiavelli <laughs> tells us uh, what he's talking about and the core concept uh, of the whole book in the first sentence. And we know that all authors like to do this. We've talked about this since episode one of The Scarlet Letter. But the first sentence of his book starts out like this. All states. And that's as far as we need to go. We didn't even get the whole sentence. No, Only to, two words. To get to the first point that we need to highlight. Because the first core term that you have to define is what does he mean by the word state? Uh, Because what he means by this informs every other concept in the book. Stephen Covey, in his best-selling self-help book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it's his second habit, but he says in the book that you must begin with the end in mind. And what Covey means by that is you have to have firmly planted in your mind what your end game is if you want to be a highly effective person. And this, to me, is the starting place for Machiavelli, except he's going to tell you what the end in mind is. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Machiavelli is clear uh, that what should be what should be the driving concern and what should inform everything that you do at all times in leadership. And the end he has in mind is holding on to your state. He will say that that is everything. But saying hold on to your state, <laughs> that seems you know, vague and, and quite obvious because the word state, it's a simple word and it has an obvious meaning. Well, in the first sense of the word, we know that your state, like the state of Tennessee or something like that, it's a territory under one government. And in one sense, it's the place, if you're the ruler of Tennessee, where we live, then that's your state. In the case of Florence, the territory of Tuscany, where the Medicis live, it was their state. But the word implies something more than that and something that's linked that 
that he links to that in his mind, uh, but we can think of it in a different way. So there's another kind of meaning to the word state, and that is your condition. And in this case, he's going to say your condition of having power or your condition in being in control or in leadership of your state. In their world, and I think it's still true today, uh, clearly it's true today, that the state of having power, staying in power, is a very instable state or unstable state. It's precarious. And that's really true no matter what kind of leadership that you're in. We see that in the political world, sometimes that even involves physical territories that shift. But in other cases, it could be your position in a particular company, your leadership of a particular team, your company's leadership in a particular industry. So what Machiavelli is trying to say, the state of being in power must be your end game. And and we know that the people that are successful in the world understand that. I've heard the richest men in the world today, which of course are the sacred top dogs of Silicon Valley. And I've heard them talk about how they're always mindful that somebody could come up at any time with a new technology and knock them out of the tech game. There's an aggressive back and forth, a turning and overturning of leadership in the world, in the human world. And this is something that Machiavelli saw over and over again in his lifetime, not just in Florence, but everywhere in the 16th century world. And although 16th century Florence is a long time for us, and it's far away geographically from for most of us, this crazy microcosm that was the city-states of Italy is a particular example of the universal state of all mankind always. Well, true. All of us live in unstable states. And humans are constantly competing whether they want to or not, whether they want to admit it or not, uh, or even whether they realize it or not. And they're all competing to have places of privilege and dominance in the world. Right, and Machiavelli had seen so many coup d'etats, as the French like to call it. And I really think the French have a great expression for this because coup d'etat literally means a blow (laughs) to your state. So if you understand the concept of state, then you can understand what it means to to have a coup d'etat or a blow to your state. You can blow up your territory. You can blow up your leadership of it. You can blow up your dominance in the space that you're trying to compete in. It's actually possible for an outsider to come into your friend group and and instigate a coup d'etat with this kind of thinking. And so Machiavelli saw this toppling of the current order in very literal ways because it was being played out very literally. But no matter matter how you want to understand your state, he's going to break down for the reader. What do you do if you want to avoid a blow to your state or a coup (laughs) (laughs) d'etat? It's possible uh, to say that Machiavelli had a slightly bleak, jaded perspective of power um, at this point in his career. I know we're going to talk about the role of fortune or luck later, but I think it's important to point out that Machiavelli really didn't have a lot of luck. In the year 1512, he's flying high as a de facto ambassador uh, to the courts of Europe. And by 1513, he's toxic to the point that he literally was chained in a cell with 
swollen lice. Those were his words, not mine. Yuck. Uh, and he endured a very specific form of torture where they uh, secured the victim's wrist by a rope behind his back. And they pulled the victim up with a pulley and allowed the victim to fall a distance uh, ouch. far enough to dislocate his shoulders. And I mean, it's extremely uh, painful. And obviously he suffered all of this for accusations that really have been, by and large, considered unmerited, even by present historians. Well, those descriptions are clearly unfortuitous, yes, unlucky. He unfortunate. And I may want to add that his state was clearly toppled. Yes, he understood that. <laughs> he experienced his own coup d'etat, poor thing. <laughs> well, that's a one way of looking at it. And so he begins writing to Prince right after being released from this torture experience. I also want to add uh, that he was never able to understand why, after what he considered to be such exemplary work of loyalty and good faith to the government of his country, that he was so forsaken, even if the leadership had changed. Let me read a quote from a letter that he wrote later on in life. He says this, There should be no doubt about my word, for since I have always kept it. I should not start learning how to break it now. Whoever has been honest and faithful for 43 years, as I have, is unable to change his nature. My poverty is a witness to my loyalty and honesty. And so there's no doubt he'd been a part of some successful negotiations. But in the end, he'd been tortured, thrown out of a job, exiled from the country. Uh, that would be enough to make anyone cynical, I think. Yes, and it is amazing. Even his fiercest opponents never denied that he was all those things. Maybe this book would have had a different sequel had the Medicis retained his services, mm. which they never did. Of course, we'll never know. And that quote seems a little ironic after some of the advice he's going to give the prince in this book, specifically about honesty and keeping your word. But in the end, just like Leonardo da Vinci wanted to create a picture of the man or a human that was realistic as possible, it seems Machiavelli wants to create a picture of politics as they actually work that is as accurate and as realistic as possible. And so he starts at the beginning when he takes us back, and, and this is what he does between chapters 1 and 11, even though we're not going to quite finish 1 through 11 today, but he's going to specifically delineate how people get power and what are the tips he learned along the way as he watched people acquire their power and he harps on certain ideas and I know you're you're going to agree with this but one of the ideas that he really does harp on is that you must learn from the path that has been trodden before us look at what they did look at what great people did think about it and do that <laughs> one of my favorite quotes of all time goes along with this is from Cicero uh, and he says, to not study the past is to always remain a child. Wow. Well, after we understand how people get power, then we must turn our attention to the most important issue, which is keeping it and keeping it gloriously once you have it. And remember, he's job interviewing for a man who already is in power. So if you want to think of these first chapters as kind of background, it might be helpful to think of it that way in regard to the rest of the book, which is obviously how to keep your state and keep it gloriously, or as Machiavelli puts it, mantiene to a stato, something like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this journey very much begins with a very simple dichotomy. Virtue versus fortune. Virtu versus 
Fortuna. You're and I am your, enjoying your Italian accent. I know, I'm enjoying this. Virtu will help you get power. Although virtue alone cannot guarantee success. He makes the claim that you can't get power without what he calls fortuna. Now, we translate that fortune because of the cognate, but a better word, I think, is luck. He says in his own way, show me a man with power, and I will show you a man with fortuna. In other words, that Mm. guy got lucky. There is an element of luck in reaching leadership, especially high leadership, especially high political leadership. And I don't need to give contemporary examples. They're all over the world. Wherever you live, I know you can find one. You don't have to go back to the recesses, to the deep recesses of your mind to see that in your country, there was an element of luck of how the person who's the leader got the job and go back to the person before them. I bet you can identify the element of luck that got that person there too and so forth and so on. So there's always an element of luck, but it's not all luck. Virtu, as he will explain, plays an important, actually a crucial role. And however you get to power, and however lucky you got to get to power, you cannot keep your power without a large amount of virtu. And if you, by some miracle of fortune, find yourself in a place of power and you don't have virtu, he's going to say you most certainly will quickly lose it. The key to rising to power is virtue with a little bit of luck thrown in, but the key to keeping power is a high level of virtue. The word virtue, for people who like to keep up with numbers, is used 60 times in this little book. That's like one per page. I think it's a thing. (laughs) It's a thing. It's the theme of the book. And the theme of the book is, okay, so how do you build virtue into your life? That's why I said, uh, in one sense, you can look at this book as a book that looks at politics as not having a moral center. Uh, But in another sense, virtue is a moral center for the book. So it's not devoid of morality. It's just a different perspective of morality as compared to the Judeo-Christian virtues um, of his contemporaries in Catholic Italy. He also places luck or fortune into the uh, mathematical formula for success, which is not common. We want to think that hard work drives success. And he makes the opposite claim. You must manage your luck. You must think about it and account for it. Fortune, he defines as those things in life that we absolutely cannot control. And Christy, uh, bringing it back to gender politics for a moment, you'll be amused (laughs) to know that it's not just Machiavelli, but for the ancient Romans as well, fortune is a woman and a treacherous one at that. (laughs) Well, I can't disagree with that. But back to his contention about keeping one state, I want to make another point about morality. uh, And that is that successful leaders are always operating on a save your state first morality, whether they own it openly or not. You need to understand that fundamental truth and operate on the same moral page that everyone else is operating who's competing with you. Whether you think it's right or wrong to do that, whether people openly admit or deny that that's what they're doing, 
because we like to claim, oh, we're all working in this together. We all have the same goals. We all want the same things. World peace, cooperation, da da da. But being able to succeed in holding on to your state will depend on the strength of character you exhibit, or as he phrases it, how much virtue you have. By Machiavelli's way of thinking, everything depends on a person's virtue. The more virtue you have, the better you'll be at leadership. So we need to define more specifically what are the attributes that you have if you're going to call yourself a virtuous person. Yes, and that's the rub. Today we think of virtues as nice character traits to have, like patience is a virtue and honesty is a virtue and love is a virtue. In Machiavelli's case, Two out of those three things will end with a coup d'etat <laughs> oh dear. or a blow to your state. So virtue to Machiavelli centers around the concept of vir, that Latin word for man. So a, a straightforward transliteration would be manliness. Manliness. Oh, dear. Uh, we do probably need to interrupt just for a second. And just to say up front, the language of the Renaissance is gendered. So we mustn't take offense or get hung up on these gendered kinds of descriptions of virtue. Vir is the Latin word for man, manliness, which we say that rings of all kinds of gender bond bias comments that could be distracting. And I don't want to have any of this kind of discussion. It's not designed to to be driving the discussion of this book. He's not talking about boy, girl, those kinds of things. When he uses the word man, it's in the sense of human. What does it mean to be a strong human? Like the Romans identified their strong heroes, their strong people with strength of will and character, the ability to stand tall, that sort of thing. So yeah, I know it's a little distracting to say the word manliness. Maybe we could use the word humanliness. <laughs> We could, but I think that just confuses the point further. Uh, no, it wouldn't be Machiavelli to do so. No. So, well, uh, if that's helpful, and just to be clear, uh, even Machiavelli uses one female example in his book of a person with great virtue, so there's that. And, and although most of the, the strong, virtuous leaders of his time were men, remember, he's not writing in a vacuum, and he didn't make up the term virtue either. Being a man or a virtuous human was not a foreign concept to his audience. It was something they talked about all the time. There were lots of books on how to be virtuous. There were even uh, other books on how to be princess. Uh, Virtus is the deity of bravery for the ancient Romans. So there's a good use of that word. And they've been writing about this for centuries. Uh, many other philosophers um, whose names would be familiar to us even to this day spent a great deal of time explaining what a virtuous man was, and there was actually a general consensus of what this consisted of. Um, Cicero, Seneca, and the other older Roman writers, they all agreed that to be a good leader, you must have a few core characteristics. To have virtus, and, and these were justice and generosity and clemency. Well, interestingly enough, uh, what Machiavelli is going to say, maybe turning these upside down just a little bit, because he's going to claim to have those is not as straightforward as it might appear. Exactly. So let's get started. Uh, if I'm a new prince, or if I'm not even a prince yet at all, what are the core principles that I need to keep in mind 
if I want to keep my state or get my state, what do I need to do to exhibit my vertu and uh, defeat any bad fortune that could come my way? Well, this is where chapter three opens up. He says in chapter two, as we talked about last week, if you inherit a kingdom, you, you have it easy. Nobody likes change. You just hold on to the status quo and you're fine. But in chapter three, this is where those of us who we have no inherited fortunes or large estates, we may find ourselves in life. How do you break in to a power structure? And the first thing he says you should keep in mind is that the answer is, well, it's not easy. <laughs> Okay, glad you will the need <laughs> friends, supporters, and alliances, and there really is little motivation for anybody to help the new guy break in. So there's a series of tips that he's going to give. The tip number one, you know, you need to move there. We talked about this last week. Live with the people. Stay close to the people you rule. Tip number two, make friends with weak neighbors. Don't worry about the strong ones. Focus on your weak neighbors. Tip number three, if you feel like you have to hurt someone, and clearly there must be a time for that. I think there's a lot. (laughs) You better hurt them so badly that they cannot revenge themselves because if they can, they will. So if you go for somebody, you better leave them alone completely or destroy them Totally, so they are completely incapable of getting you back. Otherwise, beware. <laughs> First three tips to developing your veer two. And then he goes on to give examples, both from his current world and from the ancient world, of how this plays out either positively or negatively. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, My first thought is that the strategy of calling out local leaders is a pretty gutsy strategy. (laughs) Remember, he's a middle-class guy. He doesn't have power or or property or or any of the things he's referencing throughout his entire book. He calls out the behaviors of contemporary people. Some of these references also come very close to calling out the Medicis themselves for their bad leadership. Uh, But my second thought is how uh, counterintuitive some of these ideas are. Look at that second tip. Make friends with weak neighbors. Most people would do the exact opposite. So uh, you're in a new field. You want to break into the market share. And the natural instinct is to find the strongest business competitor in the market and ally yourself to them. And he says um, to do what you need to do is the opposite of that. Do, do what seems the opposite of natural. And his explanation and example are really great. He references this guy uh, we don't know, but they did, King Charles, who came in and made friendships not with the weak principalities, but with Pope Alexander. And this hacked off the little guys, and it didn't do him any good either. True. And when I ask my students about this advice about revenge, they can immediately apply it to themselves. They've all experienced it in this cancer culture world of the internet. Cancel culture? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) When we get to chapter four, he compares power that is diffused with power that is centralized. And he's going to compare Turkey to France. And we don't have time to summarize his entire argument, unfortunately. But the thing that sticks out to me, and and I know this might be the American girl in me, is that he absolutely believes that if you want to have princely or 
authoritarian control, you have to centralize it like the Turks did. And although I'm cool with that when it comes to business or if I'm the prince, <laughs> I'm not so cool with that okay. when it comes to other people leading me or, or politics. I think you're not alone in that. <laughs> Historically, uh, and that is our legacy from Madison and Jefferson, uh, but Americans by tradition don't like uh, and they very much distrust centralized authority. I mean, for the exact reason he references in Chapter 4 and that he also develops more fully in Chapter 5. In America, uh, as in Florence in that day, we are very much accustomed to what he calls liberté. Well, I don't know about my pronunciation of that, but anyway, we call, it, we call it liberty. And this is defined as uh, someone getting out of your way. People who've been given freedom to live their lives as they see fit, they very much resent leadership that comes in and tries to control things from a centralized location. Uh, someone who comes from the outside and claims to know how you should live your life better than you. And of course, this leadership principle applies to far more than nation states. And I, I guess since we're counting, we can call this uh, Machiavelli tip number four. If you are a prince and come into new territory, however you want to define that, if it has different laws or customs than uh, you do to establish your leadership, you have to do these three things. You've got these three options, at least. Number one, keep everything as it is for the time being, changing nothing, taking away no liberty. Number two, go and live there yourself, like we had talked about before. Or number three, totally destroy everything, or as he says, despoil them. And uh, <laughs> the quote to highlight this is, is this, um, Whoever becomes the ruler of a free city and does not destroy it can expect to be destroyed by it, for it can always find a motive for rebellion in the name of liberty. So he ends the chapter saying this in this next quote, But in republics, there is greater life, greater hatred, and more desire for vengeance. They do not and cannot cast aside the memory of their ancient liberty. So the surest way is either to lay them waste or reside in them. Interesting. Which takes us to chapter six, and we will get yet another Machiavellian definition and this final understanding of the formula for prince-making success. He's also obviously, as is his style, going to give us some really great examples. So to begin with the concept that the goal of a prince is to achieve a state of power and then hold on to it, in order to do this, he must be a man or woman of great virtu or virtue, which we have defined among other, among other things and that we're going to be developing over the course of the entire book. But it's this concept of internal personal strength and ability to make good decisions that are either difficult or counterintuitive. We've also introduced this idea of fortuna or luck, which we've defined as those things in life over which we have no personal control and we're now going to come up to this idea of occasione, which I said at the beginning. <laughs> you or said the, like the Mario I Brothers know, or the, or the occasion. Okay. Machiavelli is going to make the case, and he's going to give four examples to show this off, that to become a successful prince, fortune must grant you an occasion. And it is in that occasion, so you're going to get your shot, that you will have an opportunity to demonstrate any great virtue or your great virtue. He's going to reference Moses from the Bible, and he's going to say, you know, Moses could never have been a great leader of the Israelites had the Israelites not presented him with the occasion 
of them being enslaved in Egypt, mm. <laughs> if you think of it that way. He's going to say the same thing about Romulus in Rome and Cyrus among the Persians. And he's going to end with this historical example that I'd never heard of before Machiavelli. Yes. Um, Hiero of Syracuse. He was a, a Greek warrior that was born in 308 BC. So, you know, kind of a long time ago. Uh, it's a complicated war story, but the gist of what Machiavelli wants to point out is that he was basically an illegitimately born nobody, but he had an occasion. I'm not going to attempt your Italian pronunciation. Um, his country was under attack, and he rose to the occasion. He defeated an army hired by a man referenced in other parts of the prince, uh, a guy named called Agathocles. There's a great pet name for you someday. <laughs> And he saved Syracuse. And, and when he did, uh, his countrymen made him king. So you, you can see he was a nobody, but he had great vertu. And when the occasion presented itself, he was able to seize that opportunity. And it's important to note, and, and this is where we where vertu is markedly different than just virtue, like how we define virtue today. When Machiavelli suggests uh, that these men had great vertu, he includes in this definition of vertu an idea of having resources. Moses wasn't just a prophet of God who had an occasion to get the Israelites out of Egypt. He was an armed prophet of God. He had resources. Yes, I would say having the power of God to bring down locusts from the skies is being armed, having resources. <laughs> exactly. And of course, this has all kinds of modern applications, but you must have more than just a good idea. He says it's hard to start with what he calls a new order of things. And although people like new things, it's difficult to keep them uh, in that persuasion. Humans are by nature fickle and irrational. And at some point, uh, you must have resources to execute at the moment of your occasion, uh, which I want to point out one more thing about before we leave uh, Hiro of Syracuse. I think it's so important to notice that although Machiavelli talks about Moses and Romulus and Cyrus and the, the, you know, the great leaders from antiquity that, that did things that stand out through the ages, the example of Hiero of Syracuse is dealt with in more detail and likely the most important for one reason. It's realistic to apply. I mean, it's unlikely uh, more future or current princes reading this book see themselves in the vein of a Moses or a Romulus. Or, no, we don't have those kind of armor. Right. <laughs> Our, or our kingdoms are not from God in that same sense. And, and however, what Hiro did was something that can be imitated. He worked his way up through the rank. He seized an opportunity. He helped solve a very difficult problem, and in his case, the defeat of an opponent. He forged new alliances. He created peace and stability for his kingdom. And he did all of this using his own local resources or people. Right, which lands us at what I want to call Machiavelli tip number five, the importance of building strong foundations. I have to, I can't resist. Go for it. Fontamenti. I love these <laughs> Italian words. They're so fun because he was a nobody. He had to create his own resources, his own foundations, his own armor, so to speak. And here in chapter seven, we're going to continue this discussion of ways to do this, ways to build uh, your power, which by all this discussion of virtue and luck, we've kind of gotten away from that. But he's listed out the ways you can get power uh, if you're not necessarily 
full of these armed resources yourself. The way in chapter six is you get your resources by your great virtue and taking advantage of your occasions. But then we get to chapter seven. When you have no resources, you're going to be using other people's resources. He's going to discuss that. And then we're going to talk about, and this is where we get into kind of the controversial part of uh, Machiavelli. He actually introduces people that are someone that we would consider nefarious, this Machiavellian hero, Cesare Borgia. And we're going to give his whole life story next week because it's very interesting. And he has such a central role, not just Mm -hmm. in this chapter, but throughout the book. But in some ways, Machiavelli sees him as a great example, although he is nefarious, of somebody who was able to accumulate resources, build foundations, and create, you know, and establish his own state. In chapter 8, he says you can become a new prince by villainy. Villainy. In other words, (laughs) by being just a treacherous, terrible person if you are uh, willing to betray all your friends and kill all your fellow citizens and lie and do everything horrible imaginable. And the example he gives is a guy named Agathocles, who is a contemporary of Hiero of Syracuse. But I'm sure many of us can think up our own examples. Well, true, and lots of people are willing to make that sacrifice. Uh, and I want to add, this is where the morality of Machiavelli gets interesting. Uh, he says these things in the most dispassionate way possible. Like, oh, yeah, you can't always just kill everyone you know, treacherously stab everyone in the back. This will work, and it can get you power if you want to go that's this route. He doesn't even say that in like a disdainful way. He does point out, though, that if you receive your leadership in that kind of way, you won't get any glory. And he's going to say that the goal of being a prince, obviously, is to have glory. So it's an interesting thing to think. It's Is it enough just to be powerful? Lots of people would say, yeah, that's all I care about is getting to the top of my field. And I don't care how I do that. Machiavelli would say, well, there is that and there's a price to be paid for that. But if you do feel like you require villainy (laughs) to get to the top. Uh, Even in that circumstance, which I won't condemn your villainy, you should still follow (laughs) these two rules. If you follow these two rules, and even if you follow these two rules, you still may have to sacrifice your glory to get to power. And historians would say that should matter to you. But this is a little hope for evil tyrants. If you must do imaginably horrible stuff, unimaginable stuff, the kind of stuff that would make you sacrifice your soul, you might can still pull it off if you do two things. Number one, commit all your cruelty at once, and you have to, your cruelty should be exploited well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. That's a cheery note. Let me quote. Cruelties ill-committed are those which, although at first few, increase rather than diminish with time. A conqueror must arrange to commit all his cruelties at once, so as not to have to reoccur to them every day, and so as to be able, by not making fresh changes, to reassure people and win them over by benefiting them." Benefits should be granted little by little so that they may may be enjoyed. So let me put it this way. Here's the tip of the day. Do the treacherous thing, if you feel like 
you must. That's your only <laughs> avenue. But don't keep doing the treacherous thing. You have to actually benefit the people in mind. And if over the long term, you benefit them more than the treachery that you originally caused, then you can actually be a successful leader. What do you think of that? This idea, if you must be treacherous, <laughs> do it at once and then grant goodness over time, little uh, by little. That's obviously controversial. <laughs> And I know this is just the beginning, and I know we're just in Chapter 8, but I think it would be good to end today's discussion from the beginning of Chapter 15, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, which is the central core tenet, perhaps, of this entire book. He says this, Many have imagined republics and principalities which have never been seen are known to exist in reality. For how we live is so far removed from how we ought to live that he who abandons what is done for what ought to be done will rather learn to bring about his own ruin than his preservation. So uh, we would all like to believe that the power emerges exactly like it did maybe for a George Washington. He was a, a man of great vertu, and, uh, but he's also a man of great real virtue. And uh, his kind of honesty and integrity and goodness and generosity is the kind that we admire in good people. Uh, and he was presented by fortune. He was presented with a great occasion, and he made much of that occasion. And now he lives in glory. It's an example by the fact that we have his picture hanging in our study. Can't talk bad about George Washington. <laughs> so Machiavelli is cynically going to say that maybe that kind of leadership isn't real. Maybe it wasn't even real for George Washington. Maybe that, that's something we want to believe, and the reality is a much darker version of that. Well, do you think Machiavelli seems to be saying it's not that we don't want you know virtuous or good characteristics. It's just that we're unlikely to get them and make it all the way to the top. So they shouldn't be, something shouldn't be deal breakers. Humans are evil and even in fallen awful ways, less than good people. If they have good motives and strong virtu or character, they can still bring success or glory to their state. And the success of their personal state is linked to the success of the state of the people or the organization that they're leading. Uh, this dual concept of good leadership, meaning my state as in my leadership state is going to affect good things happening to what I lead, linking that together is a very core principle that he's going to say is the same thing. That's why the state is just one word. If that makes, I know that's kind of confusing, but does that make sense? It makes total sense. <laughs> and I think it's very much something like that. And next week, we are going to give more practical tips if you want to be a prince, uh, just how to navigate a world that's being led by people just like you described. <laughs> Slightly treacherous. <laughs> it, very treacherous. Maybe we should bring in people to talk about their experiences on social media oh, and no. cancel culture. There's a lot of Machiavellian stuff going on there. Anyway, uh, thanks for being with us today. Hope you enjoyed our discussion of a really deep and profound political work. Um, check us out on Facebook. Check us out on our Instagram page. Check us out on How to Love Lit Podcast. And thanks for supporting us. May you continue in great virtue and peace out. <laughs>
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 